and they projected themselves as a pro-change, anti-establishment, anti-politician, um, you know, kind of a party, party offering honest politics. And I think people bought into you know what they were saying and therefore the success of this anti-corruption party is quite unprecedented and it seemed like an inflection point in india's politics Hello and welcome to this edition of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name's Dan Huff from the University of Sussex. Today we are talking about something I don't think we've spent that much time talking about in the past. And that's in a way a little bit surprising. We're talking about anti-corruption parties. Political parties talk quite a lot about corruption. Politicians talk quite a lot about corruption, yet there's not that much said about parties that exist purely to tackle corruption. So we're going to try and put that right today in in our own little way. And I'm really pleased to welcome two people who've done quite a bit of research on anti-corruption parties to take part in the discussion. First up from Gothenburg, Andreas Bagenholm. He's a researcher at at, uh, the University of Gothenburg and is affiliated with the Quality of Government Institute there. Andreas, how are you? Are you well? Yep. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, great that you could come on board. Andreas is also uh, here alongside uh, Dr. Reka Devaka from the University of Sussex. Uh, Reka is a senior lecturer in politics and has written quite a lot about politics in India more broadly, but also one particular party uh, that has has made anti-corruption their calling card, the AAP. So Reka, how are you? Are you well? Yeah, I'm fine. Thanks for having me today, Dan. Well, great that you could be here. I think we'll kick off, Andreas, we'll kick off with you, if, if that's OK. Now, you've done a lot about a range of anti-corruption parties um, in a range of different places. Could you give us you know, a starter for 10 on this? Where do we usually find anti-corruption parties um, and which ones are particularly long-standing? I've mainly done research on uh, European parties and uh, in in places where parties really matter with parliamentary systems. So that is kind of the the um, the baseline for for my research. And uh, I think it's kind of a new phenomenon. Actually, they came up in uh, the beginning of the millennium, mainly in Central and Eastern Europe. That's where you find them, and for various reasons. And uh, they have been um, very successful ever since. Not necessarily the same anti-corruption party. They can come and go. But there is usually at least one or two anti-corruption parties in each election in Central and Eastern Europe. So that's, I think, the main uh, location of of, uh, the parties in Europe. Western Europe, way less so. And it's also obvious that anti-corruption is a big issue in other parts of the world. We saw the Argentinian election just the other the other day where the uh, Millet actually campaigned on, among other things, anti-corruption and, and um, yeah, uh, throwing the rascals out, so to say. So and so so it is a, an issue also in, in uh, Latin America, for sure, and uh, other parts of the world also. So that, I think lots of that really interesting. Are you saying that once anti-corruption parties are sort of out of the back once they exist in the system and have sort of stabilized themselves over and above whatever the threshold is to get into parliament then they tend to they tend to carry on sometimes in under different names under different guises but once they're out the bag then they're there it's kind of paradoxical with 
anti-corruption parties because they they can be considered like a niche party, like a green party or anti-immigration party. Uh, but the difference is that it's very hard to continue. Uh, from one election to the next, uh, using the same kind of uh, exploiting corruption as a, as an electoral issue. So mainly parties use anti-corruption rhetoric in the first election. Usually they are new and have some credibility in using anti-corruption since they are new and they don't have any political luggage, so to say, to, to carry. Um, and... If they are successful, paradoxically, they usually have to drop anti-corruption in the next election. It doesn't simply seem to work to to be in, be part of the establishment, even maybe in government, and then continue to to uh, campaign on anti-corruption. Then they have to kind of switch to some other issue. They can still have that as an important issue, but not the main one which they promote in 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 the election campaign. And um, yeah. If they're not so successful, then they may actually continue and continue to to campaign on anti-corruption. So the more successful they are, the more likely it is that they will drop uh, anti-corruption as a, a strategy. Now, this sounds like a perfect segue to talk about a country I know that you know well, Reka, India, mm-hmm. because, of course, India's anti-corruption story in terms <clears throat> of parties has got some resonance there, hasn't it? Can you talk to us a little bit about um, the AAP in India? Yeah, sure. So um, the Ahmadmi Party, the AAP, the Common Man's Party, as we understand in Hindi, emerged out of an anti-corruption civil society movement called the India Against Corruption Movement, which took shape between 2010 and 2012. And it was led by veteran social activist Anna Hazare and his very close associate Arvind Kejriwal, who later became the leader of AAP. So there's a long kind of story about how they uh, how the party emerged from the ISE, but I thought I'll give you maybe a minute of the background information if that's okay. Yeah, so the movement, the anti-corruption movement was launched in 2010. Actually, the main person who launched it was, uh, was Arvind Kejriwal, and he was an engineer by training. He did a stint in the private sector and then joined the Indian Civil Service and later on worked in areas like right to information. He had his own NGO called Parivartan, which means change. He started to help out people to, to redress their grievances without, you know, so that they can have their work done without having to pay bribes uh, in the income tax department where he worked. He won the Magasese Award for his work on RTI and anti-corruption in 2006. And I think this was the time he decided to resign from the civil services and then, you know, take up full time Um, to promote transparency in government and creating awareness on Right to Information Act and other anti-corruption tools. Um, During his uh, campaign against anti-corruption, he developed good relationships with with media as well, which was a very important key uh, kind of, you know, the media played a very key role in the India Against Corruption movement. Um, So initially, many leaders were brought in, influential, you know, leaders, religious, spiritual leaders, but then they found a new face which could give a big boost to the anti-corruption movement. And that was Anna Hazare, who was, you know, a self-proclaimed Gandhian. And and, and that's where, you know, the parallels were drawn between Anna Hazare and the second Gandhi coming on to fight, uh, you know, the elites. And the whole movement was given uh, the, the picture of a second freedom struggle. And it kind of gained a lot of a support from people. The it was covered by the media twenty four seven. They made use the, the media very effectively, and and it kind of drew a lot of people, especially from urban areas and middle classes, to join the movement against corruption. 
um, and they were demanding the Lokpal bill, which is the establishment of an ombudsman against corruption charges, especially uh, when it relates to national functionaries. So it was quite effective, and ultimately the government gave in, and they decided, you know, they gave their approval that they would bring this bill, which actually came out in 2013. But somewhere down the line, Kejriwal and Anna Hazare parted ways because Anna Hazare didn't want to give a political shape to the uh, India Against Corruption movement, whereas Kejriwal, having now got, gathered all the support and you know uh, media glare, wanted to um, float a, a political entity around this idea, and that's where uh, they parted ways in. 2011 and AAP uh, was formed in 2012 with Kejriwal as the leader and corruption uh, being the main issue. So Ke- Kejriwal and Hazari effect- effectively broke with each other, right? Because Hazari That's wanted right. to remain at the head of a social... I remember Hazari being quite an entertaining character, right? I, <laughs> yes, yes. I remember yeah. one hunger strike that he went on and he called it off because yes. it was damaging his health. And I thought, well, you know, in other news, the Pope remains Catholic. You know, if you don't eat anything, you're going to damage your health. But but I remember that him being an enigmatic figure, whereas Kejival, I mean, he sort of fulfills all the stereotype of an accountant, doesn't he? Uh, he, he was less <laughs> enigmatic, but he, he ended up being the person who led the party to successes in Delhi in particular, right? Yes, absolutely correct. Because Anna Hazar, like as you mentioned, he was that figure who, uh, you know, kind of appealed to a lot of people. He was old and he was projected as a person who's poor, doesn't have any belongings, but he's, you know, kind of committed to the cause of of corruption. In fact, he was quite instrumental earlier on in states like Maharashtra fighting for the implementation of the right to information. But he wasn't a very prominent face, to be to be honest, until he got on. Uh, nationally, he wasn't that well known until he got on to the India Against Corruption movement. And Kejriwal, of course, um, you know, being um, an educated, highly uh, qualified person, ultimately um, decided that he needs to. He was quite emboldened by the fact that he's got a, you know, a support behind him, and he wanted to kind of take uh, advantage of that kind of support that he has garnered. So he thought floating a political party would be the ideal uh, thing at that point of time. And so the successes in Delhi led them to enter government in Delhi. And that's how did, right. How did that go? That's a good question. So the first election that they fought was the Delhi Assembly elections in 2013. And they won a large number of seats. They emerged as the party with the largest number of seats, not majority. So they had to actually form the government in with support of the Congress party, which they have always alleged to be a, a kind of you know, a corrupt party, but in the end, they did decide to come in into power by having that, you know, support from the Congress. And, um, but down the line, just 49 days down the line, Kejriwal actually resigned from the Delhi government. And that was the, that was due to the fact that he could not get the Lokpal bill passed in the Delhi assembly because of the lack of support. So that kind of showed that, you know, the party was really committed to, you know, anti-corruption issues and agendas. And, and then Delhi was placed under presidential rule. Um, and then the other election, set of elections were called only in 2015, which Kejriwal and his party had a massive victory at. They got majority of the seats, they got majority of the votes, both in 2015 and 2020. Now, whether corruption still remained, their agenda is something, um, you know, which we can discuss. And as Andrea says, uh, Andrea said that the once you get into, get into establishment and more successful you are, the corruption agenda is kind of left somewhere far behind. And that's exactly what happened with the Aam Army Party as well, which we can discuss as we get into the um, into the debate. Sure. I mean, Andres, thinking back to Europe then, what, what, 
what has made these parties successful in government when they have been successful in government? Is there a track or is there sets of things that you would point to say that they've managed to affect change when dot dot dot? What, what would you point out there? Yeah, it's it's very hard to measure kind of success in terms of curbing corruption. So we have looked more on the electoral success. So what kind of what are the uh, facilitators to break through? And that is, of course, a, a, a context with high corruption. It's very hard to campaign on corruption if if people don't really see that corruption is a big issue. You never see it in North Northwestern Europe, for instance, so that's why it's in Eastern Europe. It's also new parties um, that campaign on anti-corruption. It's very rarely established parties, sometimes oppositional parties, but very uh, often completely new parties. They also tend to have political leaders that are not politicians and that they come from different parts of society. They can be from uh, in uh, Estonia, for example, was the uh, the state auditor. In, in Latvia, it was the head of the central bank. It has been media personalities, business people, and so on. People who are known by the public, but not for being politicians, and by that, not being involved in corruption scandals. And also, I think the last thing to be successful electorally is that the party system has to be a little bit volatile. Uh, that people are used to new parties coming and going. There are no really kind of fixed points in 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 the uh, in the party system to hang on to. And so, so but when, when it comes to policy failure or policy success, it's very hard because if you, you you cannot measure it in terms of how much they they affect corruption as such. We don't have any indicators of that. The corruption indexes are far too sticky and far too constant over time. So what I tried to do in the study was to see what initiatives the government put forward if if they were kind of initiating uh, anti-corruption reforms and to what extent they were considered uh, reasonable, but usually made very little difference in, in the corruption indexes. But I think one could say that there were a difference between the parties. I think those parties that were more sincere were the ones who campaigned on corruption to combat it, like not only attacking your opponents of being corrupt, kind of, yeah, you know, drain with unsubstantiated uh, kind of allegation, draining the swamp and coming with chainsaws to the party meetings and so on. So the ones who really wanted to combat corruption on all levels, they those parties seem to be more... Uh, successful also in terms of of implementing reforms, whereas those who were more sluggish and more kind of no, not sluggish, more not not so sophisticated in their rhetoric, more kind of populist kind of style, uh, they um, they tended to get less done and also to be themselves bogged down in in corruption scandals, which happened quite quite often. So I would say that it's a mixed bag. Some parties were quite successful, or as successful as you can. Uh, hope for some were did very little, mainly because maybe they didn't have the right ministerial positions, and some did the same thing as the old political parties that is became involved in in corruption uh, deals. So yeah, so very hard to kind of to to measure success, unfortunately, because that's what we what we're most interested in. Do they make a difference or not? Well, it's a sensible answer, though, isn't it? You know, there's no point in trying to, to measure something that um, that you're not going to measure properly. That would that would yeah. m- make no sense. Right. 
I'm interested about the point about volatility, because, of course, the, the story you, that you've told is, is predominantly a Central and Eastern European one. But we, we, we're seeing more volatility in, in once traditionally stable Western European systems. Germany is a great case mm. in point. It's gone from two and a half parties to sort of seven. And, and there's, you know, we, we're seeing a new one on the left that, that's appearing right now um, that that's on the left, maybe on the left, sort of on the left. Who knows? You know, and, and it strikes me there may be more opportunities for anti-corruption parties in these traditional systems. Would you see it that way? Uh, it depends. We've seen a few in uh, occasionally in Spain and Greece, uh, usually in in terms in times when there were kind of economic crises. At the same time, Italy has had one or two. Uh, otherwise, not so many actually. I cannot see the the market for an anti-corruption party in in the Nordic countries, for instance. Uh, of course, you can address the issue, but not as a purely anti-corruption party, then you have to also have some additional kind of topic or or uh, ideological position that you you, you promote. I, I think it's I, I think it's hard. So I, I think you're completely right. I, I think and if you look at the party systems, they're kind of expanding in all direction. But it is like animal parties, it's pensioners' parties, it's uh, yeah, very kind of niched parties. But anti-corruption parties takes a very particular environment and, and context in order to to work and in order not to be considered uh, a populist which is i think very important also you should be taken seriously and then you need to have uh, good cases to to make that point i think yeah i think i think populism is an interesting analogy here i mean many populist scholars talk about populism as a thin ideology don't they? It links in with other things, uh, which would lead it to be quite left wing in some places, quite right wing in some places, quite all over the place in others. And I guess there may be an element of that with anti-corruptionism being a thin ideology as well. Going back to India, Ray, could that made me think about about the AAP and its opponents. What, what did its opponents say when the AAP rose to prominence in Delhi? Did, did they try to steal its clothes, as it were? Did they try to portray it as an outsider that should be ignored and was dangerous, maybe? Or did they do something else? What were their responses? Uh, what were their responses like? Yeah, so ARP came, uh, you know, it came, came into existence un- under a very uh, unique set of circumstances. So it kind of uh, rising high on the um, success of the India Against Corruption movement, ARP offered itself as a political alternative to people. And they were, you know, this was amid alleged allegate, uh, corruption scandals uh, that has uh, that had emerged during the second term of the Congress-led UPA government, which was in power between 2009 and 2014, and largely unresponsive politicians, high inflation, and they projected themselves as a pro-change, anti-establishment, anti-politician, um, you know, kind of a party, party offering honest politics. And I think people bought into um, you know what they were saying and therefore the success of this anti-corruption party is quite unprecedented and it seemed like an inflection point in India's politics because Indian politics is dominated by so many other social cleavages that's very hard for any new party to emerge. I mean, there are high barriers to entry in any case, and you know the, the electoral funding is needed. And, um, you know there are there is politics around caste, religion, region, ethnicity, and therefore I think uh, are becoming a successful party, especially in Delhi and later in Punjab, is quite a feat. Um, how other parties have taken to it? I mean, obviously they take 
AP as a threat, but Amadmi Party has kind of moved away from that, you know, corruption element that Andreas was talking about because it's an establishment now. It has uh, ambitions to go, you know, pan India. In fact, in 2023, it got the uh, tag of a national party, so it was elevated to a status of a national party in 2023, which is a big feat for a party that only came around a decade ago. And they have taken up a fight against the BJP because, especially in Delhi, you know, they are always at, at loggerhead with um, with the central government because Delhi is not a full state and some things are under the central government, some things are under the, the state assembly, police, law and order is all under the central government. So we hear so many, uh, you know, instances where uh, the the Ahmadi party and especially Kejriwal, um, you know, are kind of fighting with the central government. And very recently, um, they have alleged that the BJP is using the investigative agencies like the Central Bureau of Investigation, the Enforcement Directorate, to tarnish the honest image of Ahmadi party as an Andreas also mentioned, you know, in fact, interestingly, the corruption charges against many of the key leaders of the Ahmadi Party. In fact, three of its key leaders are in jail uh, in a a liquor scam case and uh, other corruption charges. So it's quite um, ironical that for a party that started off, you know, as an anti-corruption party has allegations of corruption on its leaders. And of course, Kejriwal denies all these allegations and says that the federal government, you know, is after after them. And, and that's why they become part of an opposition bloc called India, interesting name, which is the Opposition Alliance against the BJP but for just, it's the just upcoming called India. 2024. Yeah, it is actually called India, oh, but okay. it's an acronym. It is actually the full form is India, Indian National Development Inclusive Alliance. So I dot N dot D I T dot I dot A. So that's an interesting acronym to give. So it, it actually sounds like BJP against India uh, kind of a thing. But just to go back to AAP, so the AAP started off. I mean, the AAP actually is quite into the populist mode now. Populism in India is understood as uh, a journalistic interpretation is where the party is giving out freebies to um, get support of the people. And that is where, you know, the Delhi model of AAP um, is in the limelight, which is all about giving out subsidized and even free utilities like water, electricity, you know, pr- providing um, free Wi-Fi to, to people, uh, installing CCTV cameras. I mean, so I would say that corruption is not the, on the main agenda of the AAP. There are other things that they need to be in power to get the votes, to get the electoral uh, success, like Andreas was saying. Um, so somewhere down the line, the whole uh, thing about anti-corruption um, has crusade against anti-corruption has gone, has been watered down and other things have taken over because they want to expand as a, as a party all over India. And, and Kejriwal has, has ambitions of becoming you know, the prime minister one day. So I think all these factors taken in, um, AAP is a very different party than it was when it started. So I, is that, does that answer your question about how other parties are looking at it? Other parties are looking at it as an alliance partner, nothing more than right. that. I mean, I'm quite so, interested there because, I mean, it doesn't sound like the AAP is really a protest party anymore. Pro- protest is something I always assume is relatively short-lived. You, you, you protest against something. But it sounds like they've got a pretty solid constituency it's certainly in delhi but now increasingly across india so if i were to ask you what what are the key drivers of that constituency why are they voting for the aap is it the freebies or 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 is there something deeper is there is there is there a a cleavage there that now the aap is successfully mobilizing around 
No, I think it's largely coming down to the Delhi model of governance now, which is all about giving freebies, free electricity, free water. I mean, there are people who are relatively rich and they don't get any electricity or water bills. So people are kind of generally happy. But again, they've been in Delhi for two successive terms now. So all these things that they are trying to appeal to the voters might seem a bit boring. Uh, so they might need to change their, um, you know, their um, their strategy because in India there is a huge anti-incumbency factor as well, which they will have to overcome for 2024. So they have been, you know, here for two two terms, but um, you know they need they need to do more. So we'll have to see how they, you know, how the strategies change for 2024. Well, if any UK politicians are listening, if anyone wants to give me free Wi-Fi and free electricity, then I'm open to the conversation. It sounds brilliant. Absolutely. But, um, Absolutely. Uh, and and that, that's the model they want to replicate in other states as well. That's yeah. what they did in Punjab as well in 2022, and they got massive victory there. So yeah. it's working as of now, but will it work on the in the long term is something that Arp will need to kind yeah. of assess. Worth watching, that, that's for sure. It's worth watching. Bringing that back to Europe, Andreas, I don't think anybody who studied European party politics can, can have gone too far without sort of imbibing a bit of lipstick and rock hand back in the day in the late 1960s. And their talk of social cleavages and how they shaped party competition um, across the Western world. Now, obviously, things have changed quite considerably since then. There's more cleavages come up with over and beyond the post-materialist ones of, of Ronald Inglehart. But I'm interested to know where, if anywhere, anti-corruption actors sit in terms of cleavages. Is that a debate that's relevant here or are they, are they beyond that? Is this not about deep rooted social cleavages that they tap into? It, it, is, it isn't actually, it's quite the opposite. It was quite interesting to, to see the campaigns of these new parties in the, this is like the third, fourth election in Central and Eastern Europe, where first, usually the, uh, the, the right and then the left had had one or two goes in, in, uh, in government without achieving as much as the po- population uh, hoped for. Then in the third or fourth election, these anti-corruption parties emerged and uh, without having an ideological agenda, they basically said that we, we don't want to, to uh, we, we don't have any other ideas of what is to be done in society because it was like a lot of economic reforms joining the European Union and so on. We just want to do it better and uh, in a more competent way without all the sleaze. So so they really placed themselves in the middle of the road, uh, not um, positioning themselves ideologically at all, but just saying that we just want to do things better and uh, without siphoning off a lot of money into to uh, politicians' pockets and, and things like that. So it, it's kind of interesting that, and, and that made it very difficult for, for the established parties to to combat them because what could they do? They didn't steal their, or they, they didn't position themselves radically on any ideological position, but attacked the established parties where they were at their weakest and uh, extremely hard to fight fight back uh, in that position, especially if you have had one or two goes in, in government without achieving much, then they were extremely vulnerable. And that's why we saw these immense success. I mean, we're talking about new parties established a few weeks, months before the election, winning 20, 30, some, sometimes even over 40% of the votes. So so uh, it's something completely astonishing in, in European politics, which I don't know if we, we see that again. But 
It's certainly an interesting development, isn't it? And of course, I, I, I thought that's, that's a point well made, that if you attack somebody on competence when they clearly illustrated they're not always competent and you've never been in government, then um, then you've definitely got something to work with there, haven't you, as a political actor? You, 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 you've got tools that should help you to be successful. I had a rather, rather dull question about, about the parties as well, Andreas. How are you defining anti-corruption parties? How much corruption ha- or anti-corruption does there have to be in there to, for them to be an anti-corruption party? Is this it? This is what they do and nothing else? Or do you allow a little bit of wiggle room around the edges? Or how have you dealt with that challenge? That is very difficult, actually. So one way to do it is to just look at parties that campaign on anti-corruption period and uh, and then um, just see if, if they are more successful electorally than uh, anyone else regardless of what they campaign on uh, apart from that. But an anti-corruption party should be a party that primarily campaigns on anti-corruption. But of course, they need to have policies on other issues as well. They have to say something about climate change. They have to say something about the economy, obviously, uh, and foreign politics. Immigration. And, and and like, yeah, else, immigration. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so they cannot be completely blank on that. But they can also do like most uh, parties did, like saying we, yeah, we don't want to do anything particularly different. We just want to change the way politics is made, not the content of it, but the the uh, the, the process and uh, the outcomes. So, uh, but exactly where to draw the line is is very hard. But so, so it's mainly from media reports. Is is this party? considered is every time you talk about a particular party you talk about it in terms of anti-corruption uh and that is again then i suppose the view that the the voters gets that this is a party that is is uh, this is the main issue if you think corruption is the most important issue then you vote for that as you would vote for a green party if you think climate change is the most important thing even though a green party may have a lot of other policies on uh, immigration and uh, economic policies and, and things like that. So a very hard and, of course, extremely relevant question, but extremely hard to delimit exactly where to, to draw the line. It's easier with new parties. And so I would say that very few established parties would be considered anti-corruption parties because they have mainly their their focus on ideological issues or uh, iron environmental or anti-immigration or yeah so or class or whatever it might be exactly yeah. yes yeah. yeah can 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 i come in here sure, I mean, yeah. in case as well i mean there is lack of consensus on actually what corruption is and what it does and what oh, yes. kind, kind of threat it will pose to society and therefore you know finding easy legal solutions is 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 not uh, i mean it's quite difficult to find legal uh, resolution there. I mean, it's not the first time that an anti-party corruption, anti-corruption party has come to the Indian scenario. There was one party called Lok Satta, which actually emerged from a citizens movement and it um, in 1996 and became a party in 2006. And this was largely formed to promote electoral and governance reforms. It was aimed to address the issues of dynastic and vote bank politics and corruption and nepotism. But unfortunately, it did not do very well. And it has been inactive since 2016. It was also led by an ex-IS officer, if I remember correctly. And therefore, I mean, in the Indian case, the barriers are quite high when it comes to anti-corruption parties. In fact, for any new party to emerge, there are huge barriers. And for an anti-corruption party to emerge even higher, because given that there are 
there is there are immense number of social cleavages of caste religion region ethnicity we kind of bringing out an overarching kind of uh, you know vote bank around corrupt anti corruption becomes very very difficult and that is why anti corruption parties have not done well in india um, and i think earlier you asked me about you know anti corruption parties doing protests and other things and which is quite true because that's what kejriwal did he used to tell people to tear out tear up their electricity bills because they were inflated he used to stand up for the auto rickshaws you know drivers and their rights but not anymore um so corruption in courts has gone out of the agenda of aap in fact if you know there were activists earlier there were crusaders you know fighting for the lokpal bill but ironically lokpal bill was passed in 2013 and the first lokpal was not appointed until 2019 and kejriwal and his government were quite you know they didn't make any noise about it and also the whole organization is being called toothless today there has been even a, there hasn't been even one eminent case of corruption being uh, sorted by them so why isn't kejriwal or aap or all the crusaders who fought for this bill kind of making any noise now about the weakening of the institution um so this kind of just shows how corruption has gone out of the agenda and probably to remain in the scene the corruption based parties will have to pick up other agendas as anders was also saying so it's very difficult to gauge the success of their efforts uh, if at all because how do you measure corruption becomes another important um, point yeah. um, issues of defining measuring uh, conceptualizing corruption a plague the study of corruption for yes. for 30 or 40 years and i think we always have to do a bit of that but i it's why i really enjoy talking to guys like you you've done a bit of that but then you carried on and had a look at how the real world works because in the end we can't just uh, you know sit in our ivory tower scratch our heads and try and get deep about what corruption actually is because in the end the real world is out there and needs looking at i was going to finish by looking at the future folks now i don't remember being told by a very wise person never predict the future dan um because you're you know you, you you're going to get it wrong so i'm going to ask you raka to predict the future okay um and very simply in 10 years time where will the aap be will it be anywhere will it still be in existence will it be a national party of 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 real genuine standing or do you expect it to to have gone back to delhi or for something else what what should we be looking for in terms of future developments with india's most prominent anti corruption party yeah i think it's a difficult question to answer because obviously you know at the moment you can't predict the future so it's impossible you, you can't predict the future but from from our thinking they will really have to re-strategize their electoral um, you know kind of plans for 2024 election and for the upcoming delhi election in 2025 because obviously you know they would have they they may run out of gas by then i mean they have tried different things they have tried anti corruption they have tried appealing to voters based on uh, you know the delhi model of governance where they are providing freebies and other um, welfare Uh, programs so they will have to mix and match both the things punjab 2022 election that they won that would be a good space to watch out whether they you know the the anti corruption agenda is revived or not um so i think uh, it's a little bit early to make predictions but um i think it it may do well if it is able to introspect and kind of change their um, you know their agenda but then again would it really be still be an anti corruption party in the long run is something um which i cannot predict because to stay in the picture they will have to do many other things um and their performance also will depend especially in delhi will depend upon the context whether delhi becomes a full state or not 
um, because till now they have been making excuses that in Delhi we have limited powers. That's why we are not able to, you know, do many things. But so there are many ifs and buts. I think in the long run, to be honest. But I think India will have to look at other ways of dealing with political corruption in India by doing various reforms, streamlining party funding, uh, making party donations transparent, the electoral bond schemes, which is under uh, the Supreme Court, uh, you know, hearing whether that will stay or not, um, you know, proper audit of parties will happen or not. So if, if uh, you know, a proper implementation of Jan Lokpal and RTI, so if all this can happen, then probably you don't really need anti-corruption parties, but that's not going to happen. Um, well, so many other the takeaways things, that anti-corruption yes. parties don't stay anti-corruption parties for very long, that they, they inevitably have to evolve in, into something else. And the question is what the something else might be. And I was going to ask a slightly different take on that question to do with you. I can't ask you to predict the, the future party developments of, you know, 25 countries. That's just unreasonable. Um, so which other particular countries and particular parties that you think anti-corruption scholars should keep a keep a closer eye on because the developments there look interesting now the obvious caveat is a lot of these parties are new who are most successful so we won't know until they arrive but are there any places any hot spots where you think that's a particularly interesting journey keep an eye on that one i i don't know i, I think it's it's difficult because as we've said, anti-corruption parties come and go. Anti-corruption as uh, a salient issue in election campaign to kind of make a little prediction in the future will absolutely stay. It's one of the most salient issues for for uh, voters in, in, in Europe, in almost all countries. Uh, so anti-corruption uh, as an issue is here to stay. Uh, exactly which parties would... who that will pick up uh, on that issue and campaign on it. It's very hard to say. My prediction is that they will come and go uh, like they have. It will be, yeah, uh, and very few that will stick around for a long time and even fewer that will continue with their anti-corruption rhetoric. So, I mean, if you're interested in anti-corruption parties, then one should look at places where parties matter or of course, and where corruption is high and where you have those great facilitators for those new parties to 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 emerge. So I, uh, I cannot say any particular country or particular party to follow, really. But um, but uh, Central and Eastern Europe uh, is has been and is still a very interesting place to to see how this kind of continues over and over. And uh, now what is it? more than 20, well, 25 years after the first anti-corruption parties emerged, almost. We still see them in almost every election. I think Bulgaria had three or something in the last one. Yeah, some of these parties are very interesting, aren't they? I mean, we're running out of time here, but I do remember a, a former monarch coming back and, and, and doing remarkably well in a Bulgarian election. And I don't know if there's an anti-corruption angle was. to his narrative. It there was, was, wasn't it? It was, yeah. yeah. He, it, that is actually the... I, which I refer to, that is the most successful anti-corruption parties. They won 42%. And he, he founded a new party, came back from Spain after being abroad since he was five or something like that, and came back, started that party, won 42%. I mean, it says something about how uh, sick people were of, of the politicians in Bulgaria, <laughs> I think. And two two elections later, that party got 3% and was superseded by the bodyguard of, of the king who, who formed a new party anti-corruption party which is still actually around so that is actually an interesting party 
the GERB party in, in, in Bulgaria has been very um, uh, consistent since uh, yeah, for 15 years now. Yep, absolutely. Can, can, can I just sure, add one Rekha, come in, yeah. I mean, it, it's like in the Indian scenario, given the multiplicity of social cleavages, uh, which are overlapping many, many times, like religion, caste, ethnicity, region, I think building an overarching appeal just based on corruption would be very difficult. So any party that needs to sustain itself in the electoral arena will have to combine an anti-corruption agenda with a lot of social welfare schemes, which may include freebies or which may include universal you know, social programs, whatever it is. But it will have to be a combination just on its own, an anti-corruption agenda or an anti-corruption party based around you know, that issue will not sustain for a very long time, given the high barriers to entry that India has socially and institutionally. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Folks, if you're interested in hearing more uh, or reading more uh, on what Andreas and, and Reka have done, I can I can wholeheartedly recommend it. I, I had rather a deep dive at the end of last week into into some of the material that's out there, and it is a fascinating world, and it, it's an unpredictable one, which which makes it even more interesting than it already was. So so do dive in and, and catch up on the material that our two guests today have gone through. Um, Andreas, Reka, we, we sort of run out of time here, but thanks very much for your for your contributions. Plenty of food for thought. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll certainly be following the progress of these parties with quite some interest as time goes by. So um, thanks again. And uh, hopefully see you see you both again soon. Yeah, thank, thank you very, you very much. much. Thanks.